0: Lord, as we come to your word today, we remember that your word is inerrant, that your word is inspired, that your word is all-sufficient, that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, in righteousness in order that we may be prepared for every good work. So we pray, Father, that as we study your word, that your will would be done, that your work would be accomplished in us, that you would grow us in conviction, grow us in our desire to live a life that's pleasing to you for the glory of Christ. As we look through this text today, show us, Lord, the depths of our helplessness without your grace, that Christ would be highly magnified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We spent about three months in John chapter 4. We're going to be in John chapter 5 today. We're going to be starting John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 9 today. As we begin our study of John chapter five, we should understand that this chapter actually marks a a significant turning point in the text, uh, in in John's gospel narrative. Between chapters five and eight, we're going to see a couple of themes really drawn out uh, for us in the text. The first uh, major theme that we're going to see is the mounting opposition that Christ faced with the Jewish leaders and how Jesus responded to this opposition. And that's a very important theme, because in a day and age like ours, we should pay very close attention to these chapters, because the truth is that you and I face opposition as we go out into the world as well. The last chapter, chapter four, was was a chapter that was devoted to evangelism, and if there's anything that's going to uh, provoke opposition, it is evangelism as we see the culture around us just getting darker and darker, spiritually speaking. I think we've reached the point now where nothing really surprises me anymore, but that doesn't seem to stop the world from from trying. But Jesus came knowing, he, he walked the earth knowing that there would be opposition. And as you and I live in the midst of increasingly hostile opposition, we'd better be aware of it as well. The question then becomes, if we're aware of the fact that we're going to face opposition, what are you gonna do when you do face it? What are you gonna do in the face of opposition? So among the other things that we'll learn, we're, we're gonna gain some very helpful insight from the next few chapters on that, verse, uh, chapters five through eight. But just to give you a little bit of a spoiler, For what we're going to see as we go through these chapters, what we'll see is that our, our comfort and our confidence is found in seeing a second theme that is equally important for us to notice in these chapters, and that is the sovereignty of God God's sovereignty and Christ's supremacy. These, these chapters that we're going to see these themes fleshed out in five to eight are are very important for our day and age. But it all starts here. It all starts here in chapter five. It, you could argue that the road to the cross kind of started at, at Jesus's birth, okay? But this is really entering into the home stretch as we come to chapter five. And it starts with this this beautiful story of Jesus healing a man who was unable to help himself. A man who was completely helpless, a man who was completely hopeless, a man who was not seeking God. And he was a man who was putting what little hope he had into what was really a false religion, a superstition. Now, being that we're in October, uh, some of you will know that it is uh, Reformation Month, which reminds us that we are Protestants. And when you hear the term Protestant, you should remember that there's an implication there, and that is that we are protesting something. What exactly are we protesting? We are protesting false man-made religion and superstition. If if you read the the theses that Martin Luther wrote against the Roman Catholic Church, his issue with them really boiled down to complaints that dealt with the man-made ritualism and superstition within the Roman Catholic Church. He railed against indulgences especially, and that was the idea that you could uh, buy salvation— either for yourself or for somebody who was in purgatory, if you were willing to pay good money for, uh, for a relic. They would give you a relic in exchange for your money. Now, I realize that it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable when I speak against false religion and false ideologies Uh, If you go through some of the comments that I've received online uh, from people who have listened to some of our sermons here, you'll find where people gave me poor reviews because I said something critical of the Roman Catholic Church or against worldly ideologies that have crept into the American church at large, ideas like pragmatism. But Jesus and John and Paul and Jude and Peter, you might just say Jesus and all of the New Testament authors, they do the exact same thing. They rail against, they assail the false religiosity and worldly ideologies that the church was up against. And the reason is simple. Souls are at stake, and it's not enough to simply ignore all these things. If you want to stand for the, tr- for the truth, you must also stand against what is false. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said, we destroy arguments, not we ignore arguments or, or we, we minimize arguments. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There is an attack that we must launch against what is false. False religion, it always has a starting point. And it usually starts as an idea that seems very useful that seems harmless, that seems helpful, but it ends up drawing us away from what Scripture instructs and towards something that is devised not in God's, uh, not in God's Word, in His wisdom, but in man's wisdom and understanding, or lack thereof. And the truth is, a person has to be crazy or ignorant or both to think that false religion will not creep into a church or into an organization or into a person's mind that it isn't actively guarded against. Now, this past week, if you guys pay attention to the news, maybe you see it on Facebook, you may have seen that Nike unveiled a new shoe that's going to be released uh, in the upcoming months at a cost of $3,000 dollars. For a pair of shoes. That that used to be what you could buy a car with. $3,000, but it's a shoe that's filled with holy water. No joke. The soles of the shoes are filled with holy water, and they are blessed by a priest. And here's the crazy part. These shoes actually sold out within minutes in pre-orders. Let me ask you this. Do you you know what holy water is? It's it's tap water. it's, It's just... Tap water that somebody said a silly little superstitious prayer over. I can't imagine anything in recent history that so vividly illustrates the silliness and the wickedness of man-made religion and superstition. It is powerless to save, and yet people will spend crazy money for it. And that's what this story at the beginning of John chapter five is all about. It's about the powerlessness, the utter hopelessness of trusting in man-made religion and superstition. Now for us to understand that, we need to understand from the outset that this took place on the Sabbath. The story that we're about to look at today took place on the Sabbath. If you look at verse nine, at the end of verse nine, that's what it tells us, that this happened on the Sabbath. And so we have to understand, John wants us to specifically see that Jesus is publicly assailing false religion on the Sabbath. Now, he could have done it the day before, or he could have done it the day after, but no, he does it on the Sabbath. And the reason he does it on the Sabbath is to show us the point of this passage. The point of this passage is this, that man-made religion and superstition is powerless to save. Man-made religion and superstition will only enslave people but Jesus is supreme, Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is superior to man-made religion and superstition. So the story starts out innocently enough. Look at verse 1 with me, John chapter 5. John writes this. He says, after these things, what are these things? These things are the things that happened in the previous passage. Jesus healing the son of the royal official. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let's just stop there, because this is the setting. This is the setting that we've been given. Uh, There's a feast taking place in Jerusalem. Which feast is it? We don't know. We, we, well, we at least can't be sure. We don't want to spend too much time speculating where Scripture is silent, although there there are some clues that some commentators have, uh, have drawn out in their conclusion that this was probably the Feast of Pentecost. And I say, okay, maybe, maybe not. We can't be sure because we're not told. But what we are specifically told um, is that Jesus went into Jerusalem for a feast. So we can just leave it at that. We also aren't told exactly how far into the future this happened. It was after the previous events, but how far? Uh, We don't know. What we do know is that it happened between the time that Jesus ministered in Samaria and the time that John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded Uh, Back in chapter 3, verse 24, we're told John had not yet been thrown into prison, and if you look ahead to verses 33 to 35 in this chapter, we see Jesus refer to John the Baptist's ministry in the past tense. So he says of John, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in this light. So somewhere in between here, John has been imprisoned and possibly already beheaded. So given that Jesus is coming to this feast with the intent of waging war against false religion, we know, and he knew, that the opposition wasn't playing around anymore. They weren't taking things lightly anymore. And yet, what we see is that Jesus was nevertheless undeterred. He was very public about exposing these worldly ideologies and this man-made religiosity and superstition, knowing that the cost of him doing so would be great, but he always did the Father's will. And so we have to understand that it was also the Father's will for him to publicly expose this error in a very public way, in a very public way. So yes, the cost would be great, but Here's what we have to understand. The cost of not doing it would be much greater. Now, you'll remember that the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, back in chapter 2, he really caused an uproar. He, he really ruffled some feathers, so to speak, by throwing the money changers out of the temple and flipping over the tables of the people who were not only uh, not there to do what, uh, what they were supposed to do, which is worship, but they were there to do what uh, they weren't supposed to do, Uh, They were preventing people from worshiping. So the Jewish leaders, obviously, weren't very happy last time around. And this time, they're going to get even more irate. Look down at verse 16 with me. What you'll see is that this is going to lead, this is all going to lead. This one instance, this one incident right here of healing is going to lead to what we see in verse 16. Where it says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, the only question for application that I have for you before we move on and look at this text is, if Jesus was so willing to face opposition in order to secure your salvation, how willing are you to face opposition to living out your faith in a public way? Is it worth it? I want us to know from the outset that it is. The answer is yes, it is worth it. The cost of faithfulness, though, we must understand might be great. And it's becoming more costly for us to live out our faith publicly in our culture. But whatever the cost may be, even if the cost is death, we have to understand that the cost of not living out our faith, not walking in obedience to the will of the Lord, is far, far greater. So the setting for our passage today is in Jerusalem, prior to a feast, and we now zoom in on a specific location in Jerusalem. Let's look at verses two to four together. John continues writing, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now let's stop for just a moment, and as you're looking at your Bible, you probably notice that there are brackets around what we read at the end of verse three through the end of verse four. There should be brackets, or the the text should be italicized, or something like that. Uh, basically, this is a late addition. Uh, it was probably something that was passed on orally, and somebody at some point included it so that we had an understanding of. Uh, of exactly why the scene is what it is. Why are all these people gathered around Bethesda under these porticos? Uh, In in fact, the the text that you see there, I I went ahead and and treated it like it's regular text anyway because it correlates with the rest of the passage. This does seem to be exactly what's going on. Uh, People are there expecting to be healed by the water. But what we see here, it's like being introduced immediately to just a horrible scene. This pool called Bethesda. Now that term can be translated two ways. It can mean house of mercy or it can mean flowing water. And it's located, we see, by the sheep gate. The sheep gate is the gate where the sheep which have been set apart for sacrifice are led into the temple where they are slain. Uh, But we should catch two things here. Number one, we should see uh, that the Sheep Gate has some significance. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice on the cross as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And the second thing that we should see here is that there are all of these sick, invalid, helpless, hopeless people practicing false, superstitious religiosity right next to the temple, right in the proximity of where God was to be worshipped. Now, once upon a time, liberal critics who were enemies of Christianity argued that, uh, that this text couldn't have been written by an eyewitness because there was no mention of this Bethesda pool uh, or or five porticos anywhere else in Scripture, and archaeologists hadn't found anything like that. And so the argument went, this couldn't have actually been written by an eyewitness, it must have been written centuries later, um, and therefore we can't trust what what the book of John has to say. In time, however, archaeologists actually did find this exact pool and the porticos. Uh, it's now referred to as the Pool of St. Anne. They verified that it is an actual location and that the details that John has provided here were actually uh, pinpoint accurate, accurate to, to a T. But while the, the unbelief of the, of the critics who w- would try to undermine the authority of Scripture is indeed tragic. This text itself presents us with a far, far greater tragedy as John reveals what this pool was used for. It was a place where a multitude, not just a couple people, not just a few people, there was a multitude of sick, blind, lame, and withered people gathered in hopes of relief and healing. The word that gets translated as sick, by the way, I think it carries a stronger implication than having a sore throat or um, you know, having a little bit of a fever or a head cold or whatever. No, the, the Greek word actually means to be weak, feeble, to be without strength, powerless. So what we see here, we must understand, though it, it doesn't only have physical significance it has a spiritual parallel as well that speaks of the condition of the Jewish people and beyond that, it speaks of the condition of the whole human race apart from God's grace. See, whenever we're told about Jesus healing someone, there's always a spiritual lesson to be learned from that physical healing, always. There are no exceptions. His healings always, at the very least, were specifically designed to validate his identity as God incarnate. But there are often many, many lessons even beyond that. Take the time that Jesus uh, partially healed a blind man. uh, Back in Mark chapter 8, you ever heard that story where Jesus, he, he goes to a blind man and he heals him only partially when he asked the blind man if he was able to see as if Jesus didn't already know, right? Of course he did. The blind man said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. So he was seeing them very, very blurry. They, the men looked like trees. Now, doesn't that make you wonder why Jesus didn't immediately heal this blind man? It's we, we can know for sure that it's not because he's not able to. Of course he was able to. It's because there was a spiritual lesson behind this partial healing. And we find that lesson when we consider the way that the disciples were struggling with their faith in the passage immediately prior to this partial healing. Uh, So Jesus said to them, before healing this blind man, Jesus said to the disciples, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So they were struggling with their faith. And so Mark immediately, after telling us of the way that they were struggling with their faith, he immediately moves to the story of the partially healed blind man. Why? Why? To illustrate that the disciples were seeing, but as men who had been blind but could only now partially see. That's the lesson there. That's the spiritual lesson. So, back to our text in John here, we have to understand that there is a spiritual lesson behind the physical healing. It's what you might call a living parable. And the lesson starts with seeing that all of these people are not just sick, they are powerless. And all of these powerless people are a picture of the whole human race. These people are sick, they're powerless, they're unable to help themselves. Now, we should clarify, by the way what we mean when we say that they are unable, because there are k- two kinds of inability. I might say uh, I'm unable to uh, to make it to dinner tonight, meaning that, you know, there's something preventing me from going to dinner tonight. Uh, maybe I have other plans, or maybe my car is broken down, but if these things weren't in the way, if we did something to, to get those things out of the way, of course I'm physically able to come. Um, you might say I'm not able to sing very well. Believe me, I know. Uh, If I were to get some voice lessons, you know, I could improve on that. So it's not that I'm uh, physically unable, it's just that I haven't been trained. Uh, I might close my eyes and say that I'm unable to see, but I'm able to fix that by opening my eyes. So that's the first type of inability. But there's a second type of inability. For example, I'm unable to run 150 miles an hour, and so are you, and so is everybody else who has ever or will ever walk the face of the planet. Unassisted, on our own, we can't run 150 miles an hour. We are unable. What prevents us from doing so? Nature. Our nature. Uh, God also is Uh, unable to do certain things. He's unable to lie. He's unable to sin. Scripture actually tells us it's impossible for God to lie. He's unable. Why? Again, likewise, his nature. His nature renders him unable to lie or to sin. So the first kind of inability is remedied by removing whatever is, is hindering us. But the second kind of inability prevents us from doing something no matter how badly we want it. And that second kind of inability is the category that the Bible uses to describe mankind apart from God's grace. When the Bible tells us that fallen man is unable to do anything that's pleasing to God, it's talking about this second kind of inability, one that cannot be overcome on our own, even by our best efforts. We see this clearly in John chapter eight, verse 38, when Jesus uh, says to some unbelieving people, "Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word." In 2 Peter 2:14, 2, Peter writes of people who cannot cease from sinning. In Romans chapter eight, verses seven and eight, Paul says, of those who are in the flesh, "The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not uh, subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so." And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So just like these people at the pool of Bethesda are sick, that they are powerless, they're unable to help themselves physically, so too humanity is in the exact same condition spiritually. Because if you look at the terms that are used to describe these people, we see that these are all terms that are used to describe humanity as a whole apart from God. These terms are blind, lame, and withered. Uh, The the Bible uses all these terms to describe natural man in his natural state. We are born spiritually blind unless we are born from above. As Jesus told Nicodemus, he he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're also lame. This is somebody who can't walk. Uh, the story of the man who was lame being lowered through the roof by his friends in Mark chapter 2, for example, illustrates this spiritual lameness, our inability to come to Christ on our own. And we are withered. The Greek word for withered actually carries the implication of dryness, being dried up and shriveled up. And our spiritual dry withered state is illustrated more than clearly in Ezekiel chapter 37 in the valley of dry bones. Those dry bones, that's a picture of us. It's not that that, uh, the the dry bones are going to come to life if they decide to come to life. No, they are unable to do anything unless God acts to bring life to them. The Bible doesn't tell us, friends, that man is spiritually ill. It tells us that we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, Ezekiel 37 make this clear. Genesis chapter 3 makes this clear. We are unable to save ourselves. Not in the sense that if a condition were just removed, we could respond and make it happen, but in the sense that we are completely spiritually dead and thus powerless to save ourselves or to do anything at all that's pleasing to God. It's not that we will not do what is good. It's not that we will not do something to remedy our situation. It's that we cannot. And that's why Jesus would say, "No uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, here's what people will usually say when you bring out that, uh, that verse. They'll usually say, well, doesn't God draw everyone? And I'll answer that with John chapter 6, verse 37, which is only seven verses prior to uh, Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who, sends me, uh, who sent me draws him. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So is everyone drawn. Everyone drawn who is given to the Son by the Father, is drawn. And all who are drawn by the Father will come. Because without being drawn, which, by the way, is a very forceful word. It doesn't mean to woo or to try to persuade. It means to drag somebody, like you're dragging somebody off to court. John actually uses the word when he's talking about uh, the, the fishermen at the end of the book, when they drag in, when, when they, they draw in too many fish for them to draw in right? It's for too many for them to, to, to count. So not only, bec- because without being drawn, again, a forceful word, man not only will not come, but he cannot. He's unable in the second sense. So as we consider the scene here at Bethesda, we see that multitudes had placed all of their hopes in a puddle, a big puddle of water, and it's a superstition uh, about this pool. It was a powerless religion. And and the crazy thing is they're, they're so near to the temple and yet not a single one of them is crying out to God for mercy because their hope isn't in God. Their hope is in their personal ability to be the first one down to the water when an angel supposedly stirs the waters. And this is where we see, friends, this is where we see, when we see ourselves as this multitude, this is where we see our greatest need. Our greatest need is for the grace of God to be poured out upon us, to turn our, our minds, to turn our hearts and our eyes away from the things that we have trusted in, to turn our, our, our eyes away from man-made religion and silly superstitions like a pair of shoes filled with holy water. And that is what we see take place at this pool called Bethesda. Let's continue verses five to nine. John continues saying, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the water when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up uh, your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. What we see here, friends, is the power of light shining into the darkness, and yet the darkness failing to understand it. The darkness failing to comprehend it. Because this scene is not just Jesus and this one man. These, these, uh, th- this whole scene is surrounded by multitudes of people who are in the same condition as this man. And yet, though Christ walks among the multitudes, not a single one of them cries out to him for help. He he had already done signs and wonders in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2. So some people would have known about him. And yet Jesus, the great physician himself, passes by right through the multitudes and not a single one of them cries out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this is what you see in every false religion It's not merely that people are misled or misguided like these people around Bethesda were. No, they've put their hope in something else, in themselves, in their own ability to do something to please God. And Jesus, even if he were to appear to them in the flesh, he could pass right by them without them even noticing or calling out to him. Because the truth is, he's not wanted there. This underscores the fact that the sinner's only hope is that God would extend his grace and his mercy to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and to open our eyes that we may see and desire God rightly. As A.W. Pink notes, he says, were it not for sovereign grace, every member of Adam's race would perish eternally. Grace is the sinner's only hope. End quote. So Jesus passes by, passes right through these multitudes, and he comes to this one man who, again, isn't given a name, just like the woman at the well wasn't given a name, just like the royal official at the end of chapter 4 wasn't given a name. And why does he come to this one man? Out of all the multitudes, why is it this man that he comes to? Why doesn't Jesus just announce to everyone who's there, hey, if you guys desire to be healed, here I am. I I can help you. I'm the only one who can help you. I'm the only one who's able to do for you what you are unable to do for yourself. Why doesn't he do that? Because it's a picture of salvation. How do we know it's a picture of salvation? Look down at verse 21. As Jesus is explaining his actions to the Pharisees here, he says, for uh, the Father will, uh, let's see, verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's said in reference to him healing this man on the Sabbath. So it's, yes, it's a healing, it's a physical healing, but it's also Jesus imparting life to this man. The Bible tells us very clearly, friends, this, this is a picture of salvation and God tells us clearly in his word, Romans chapter nine, verses 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will show compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Well, when you, when you say that, when you bring up fairness, what you're asking for is justice. And what does justice demand? Justice demands our condemnation under the law. See, when people talk about God's sovereignty in salvation, we aren't saying that God will actually turn anybody away who's truly seeking him. No, to the contrary. That, that's why we have a savior, because all who come to him, Jesus says, I will not cast them out. What we're saying is that nobody, nobody in the entire human race apart from God's grace is truly seeking God or truly wants to be saved because we put our hope in other things. We put our hope in ourselves and in ourselves in our own ability to do this and that because we're hostile to God by nature and only God's grace can change that. If God's grace is a gift, then who are we to tell him whether or not it's fair for him to give it? Now you might say, well, for a gift to be a gift, it has to be received. I don't know who came up with that line, but that is very obviously not true. Listen, if I were to go to the bank first thing tomorrow morning, actually the banks are closed tomorrow, I think, so Tuesday morning, if I were to go to the bank first thing in the morning and transfer $5 million to your bank account, it doesn't matter if you say, oh, I haven't received that gift. The IRS is coming for you. They, they want their piece of the pie. Uh, it's been credited to your account. It is yours legally. The fact is, friends, as we consider why Jesus chose this man. The fact is that there's nothing special. There's nothing unique about this man. He and Jesus are surrounded by people who are equally needy. So why this man? Verse 21, what Jesus says in verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. This is the verse that tells us what this healing is really all about, what the spiritual lesson in this healing is all about. It's about the sovereignty of God in salvation. All of these multitudes around them are in need. But Jesus goes to the one man and asks him what might seem like a strange question. He asks him, do you wish to get well? Is that a strange question to ask somebody who's been sick for 38 years? It might seem kind of strange, it might even seem cruel, because we might say, of course uh, this man wants to get well. Are are you joking? Of course he wants to get well, right? I mean, isn't that why he's there? Uh, Indeed it is, and Jesus knows that that's why he's there. So Jesus isn't asking the man an insulting question here. Rather, what he's doing, what Jesus is doing here, is he is impressing upon this man's mind how great his need is. This is ultimately Jesus' way of saying, are you willing to trust in me rather than trusting in this water to help you? Are you willing to trust in me instead of yourself getting to the water in order for you to be healed? Are you willing to trust me to do what you are unable to do for yourself? And maybe the only thing stranger about Jesus' question is the answer that the man gives. Uh, He doesn't say, yes, help me. He says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Talk about cruelty. See, when we understand what Jesus is getting at here, we, we see how, how ridiculous this answer is, how faithless this answer is. He's essentially saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in this water. I, I know that this is my only hope, uh, but I can't get to it. Somebody always beats me to the punch. But notice this. He doesn't answer Jesus' question. He doesn't ask Jesus to even be that man who would help him get into the water. He could have said, of course I wish to get well. Will you be the person to carry me down the next time the waters get stirred up? That's not what he says. Because that's not where his eyes are fixed. Where are his eyes fixed? Not on God. His eye, his hope is firmly fixed on himself, on his fellow man, on the water in Bethesda. Anything but God. There's no mention of God anywhere. What this man in what this man says. So it's really a horribly sad state of affairs, isn't it? Even if the waters had the ability to to heal, and I'm not sure that they actually did, although it's possible that there may have been some kind of healing element in the waters. Um, But even if the waters had the ability to heal, only one person could periodically be healed. And even then, uh, only the person who was able to get there the fastest. That means the most crippled never get healed, and the least crippled are always the ones to be healed. And, And this man doesn't have... This man doesn't have a chance. He doesn't have a chance in the world because people are selfish. He may have been there the longest even, but somebody else is always thinking of themselves first, so they beat him to the punch. But here's this man's hope. His hope is not the water. His hope is not somebody bringing him to the water. This man's hope is that Christ alone is the faithful friend of sinners. Sinners. This man was not seeking Christ, but Christ was seeking him. And so it was with us, which is why we sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And so Jesus says to the man, get up, pick up your pallet and walk the man is healed instantly. Again, without Jesus even touching him, just like the miracles that we've already seen. He doesn't wait for the man to ask to be healed. I I mean, if Jesus waited for this man to ask to be healed, he might have been there all day. He might have been there all year. He might have been there for the rest of this man's life. See, if Jesus waited for people to ask before saving them, before extending grace and mercy and opening the eyes of our heart that we may see and believe. If Jesus didn't do that first, nobody would ask because nobody's seeking for God and so nobody would be saved. And that is why we need grace. And grace has been freely given to this man who responds by picking up his pallet and leaving his old life at the edge of Bethesda behind. And this is how Jesus saves sinners even today. If our salvation depended on us reaching out to him, or calling out to him, or responding to his offer of healing and redemption and forgiveness, we'd have something to boast in if we could say, well, we played a part. We had to respond. We'd have something to boast in, wouldn't we? Of course we would. I mean, that's undeniable, But we have to see that Jesus didn't render this man able to be healed. He could could have done that. He could have just healed his legs and and made him the fastest person on the planet uh, so that he could be the first one to the water. But he didn't do that. No, he he heals him on the spot without touching him instantly. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't just make his people save a bowl. He actually saves just as he actually healed this man fully and completely. And here's a very important principle that this all brings us to, friends, and it's very, understand, very important that we all understand this principle. The principle is this, the more aware we are of our weakness, of our total inability to help ourselves, the more aware we'll be of the grace that has strengthened us, doing for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. Jesus healing this man, this powerless, unable man, is a demonstration of his power, of his supremacy over man-made religion, of his paramount superiority over superstition, of his sovereign power to do what man is unable to do for himself. Only Jesus is capable of healing in both, in both body and soul according to his sovereign will for those who will look upon him with saving faith. Friends, I don't know exactly what your struggle might be in your walk with the Lord, but we all have struggles, don't we? We we all struggle to obey the way that we should. Maybe there's a sin that you've grown really sick and tired of, really weary from struggling with. The Lord Jesus has called you to get up from your pallet, On your own, you are unable. You are powerless to turn from sin. But because His power is working in you, you can. You can. Trust the Lord. And you can obey Him. His Word doesn't lack power. What lacks power? The flesh. The flesh lacks power. His Word doesn't lack power. But if your spirit is willing you can know that God is working in you and offers you the strength to not sin. So look to Christ, because he alone is the faithful friend of sinners. He alone is able to do for you what you are unable to do for yourself, to open the eyes of your heart, to fill your heart with faith, and to reconcile you to God. Man-made religion and superstition are powerless to save. Their only power is to enslave. But Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sovereign over and superior to man-made religion and superstition. And he came to set us not only free, but free indeed. Free from putting our hope in powerless things. Free from hoping in things that have no saving power, no ability to help us. See, man-made religion and superstition are focused entirely on what is outward, external conformity to what standards man makes and sets and traditions make and set, but they don't have the power to do what only Jesus can do, Jesus alone has the power to do what we cannot, to not only take the penalty of sin away from us, but also to take the power of sin away from us. This healing at Bethesda was a miracle that just vividly, vividly illustrates the power of God's grace, the sovereignty of of God's grace. It was granted sovereignly and its full power was seen in the life of this man afterward. So let us, as we consider this, let us guard our lives against the powerlessness of man-made religion, against the powerlessness of superstition, and may Christ's power be seen in our lives just as it was seen in this man's as we stand up and walk in obedience to what he has instructed in order that Christ and Christ alone may be glorified in our salvation. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, We thank you for your word, for the way that it instructs, for the clarity with which it instructs, that we were completely unable to save ourselves. And yet, while we were unable, while we were powerless to do anything for ourselves, Christ was sent to live the perfect life, to live his life Perfectly in accordance with the demands of the law. And he died a sinner's death in our place. Even while we were powerless to save ourselves. And so we thank you for this reminder of our complete inability to do anything on our own. Apart from your grace that is pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that you will grow our faith as our awareness of our weakness is increased. As we consider how unable we were to save ourselves, to do anything pleasing to you, may we more fully not only see your grace, but appreciate it and live thankful lives because of it. Oh, Father, that we would grow in our humility that we would see how great you truly are, that we would see how good, how loving, how kind you are in sending your son to die in our place, to bear, our, to bear the wrath of our sin in our place. May our lives testify to your goodness and your grace. And may we be strengthened as we continue to look to you and to walk in obedience to what you have commanded, for the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. This message has been brought to you by org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing.